This is episode 50 of Cinescope, and your future is what you make of it. So make it a good one, all of you. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Eric Skull to talk about one of our favorite films, Back to the Future Part 3. Eric, how are you doing tonight? Great, Chad. Good to be back. Thrilled to be talking about this movie. Me too. When I first contacted you and uh, got you to come onto the show, one of the very first conversations we had was about how much each of us enjoy Back to the Future. And you sort of confided in me that if I hadn't already talked about Back to the Future in our very first episode, that might have been what you had talked about uh, the very first time you were on. So I'm glad to sort of circle back and get you on the show again to finally talk about something Back to the Future related. You know, that's the great thing about sequels. <laughs> it presents another opportunity for more, for different people to talk about the series that we're all passionate about. That's for sure. And uh, for each movie, I've talked with somebody different, and it's clear that this, this trilogy is something special to everybody, I think. So I'm excited to to round it off with talking with you. So thanks for being back. Thanks for having me back. Do you want to briefly reintroduce yourself for people who may not have heard you on the show before? Sure. Uh, my name is Eric Skull. I am a podcaster. Uh, since 2005, my Harry Potter podcast, MuggleCast, is the Harry Potter podcast. You should check it out if you like Harry Potter or that new film, Fantastic Beasts. Uh, check it out. We have discussion weekly on everything Potter-related, so it's kind of really cool. And uh, Otherwise, I live in Chicago, Illinois. love that city uh, to death. And yeah, just kind of dabble uh, in other stuff, but uh, real thrilled to, to be back on. This is a great show, great podcast, as you know, since you are listening, dear listener. And uh, yeah, if you want any more info uh, on my opinions and things, just listen to the prior few episodes uh, that Chad and I have done of this show. Definitely. And I know I've said it on the show before, but you know, MuggleCast was the very first podcast I ever listened to. It was my introduction to the format. Nice. And I wouldn't have ever gotten into podcasting before Cinescope or since Cinescope if it wasn't for MuggleCast. And it's certainly not 50 episodes into my own show. So thank <laughs> you. Thank the other hosts of MuggleCast, Andrew and Micah. I'll pass it along. All the other previous hosts. It's a great show. And if you're at all a fan of Harry Potter, it's still going strong. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, before we move on to our movie discussion, I just want to briefly remind everybody that the giveaway, we've got two more weeks on the big giveaway leading up to our big one-year anniversary episode. Ooh. So if you are interested in winning movies or a movie, make sure to go over to iTunes, rate, review, or you can just share the show, tag the show on Facebook or Twitter, and that'll enter you as well for a total of up to two entries. So two weeks left. A lot of people are making it pretty easy for a small group of people to win the movies. So uh, <laughs> get out there, and if you're interested, it's a big help to the show, and you might get a movie or two out of it. So Beautiful. Now let's talk Back to the Future Part 3. Are you ready, Eric? I am ready for the thrilling conclusion. After all, at the end of Back to the Future Part 2, the title card said, To be concluded. And that's very much what this is. 
Yes, it is. This movie was released on May 25th of 1990, which is only six months, I believe, after the release of the previous film. Jeez. Uh, it, yeah, it was a pretty quick turnaround, but it makes sense since they were filmed at the same time. So it was directed again by Mr. Robert Zemeckis, who just to go over his filmography again, Romancing the Stone, the first two Back to the Futures, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Contact, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, The Polar Express, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, and Allied. The script was written by Bob Gale with story help from Zemeckis. And the music is by, again, Mr. Alan Silvestri, whose filmography is Mr. Zemeckis movies, Captain America, The First Avenger, The Avengers, The Upcoming Avengers Infinity War, and The Untitled Avengers 4. So we've got a lot more to uh, hear from him coming up soon. Love it. Oh, and it was also just announced that he's going to be composing the score for Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Ready Player One. That's right. Uh, yeah. Very excited. I think it's only the third or fourth time Spielberg has ever worked with somebody besides John Williams. And I'm slightly bummed that Williams isn't going to be composing that score in particular. But it really makes sense to have Silvestri step in considering the, the source material. You mentioned that, uh, or I saw I saw it read somewhere that uh, Ready Player One references Back to the Future. I think not too uh, lightly. Yeah, it references Back to the Future, lots of other 80s video games and pop culture kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's very fitting that Silvestri is is the person who's stepping in in, uh, in place of Williams. And hopefully that means we get sort of some new Back to the Future material, maybe. Who knows? I will, I will just die if there's a riff in there somewhere. <laughs> I will absolutely be dead in the theater. It, it would be wonderful for sure. Very exciting news, yeah. The movie stars Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, newcomer Mary Steenburgen, Thomas F. Wilson, Leah Thompson, James Tolkien, Elizabeth Shue, and a very brief appearance from <laughs> Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, man. So, as we always do, what was your first experience with this movie, Eric? Gosh, uh, my experience with this movie is probably the same as it is for the other Back to the Futures, watching them on Betamax tape in my basement at my parents' house when I was a child. And we had them all on. My dad had taped them long ago off of home box office or Showtime or wherever it was that they were airing illegally. And, uh, but that was, that was the constant source of new material for me growing up with films is all the movies that were classics he recorded all and even ones he was just generally interested in. And that was the experience. So, so watching, you know, back to the future. And I remember, uh, it was actually the second film that I watched over and over and over and actually like almost destroyed the tape, uh, watching it so many times, part two and part three, uh, for me was just kind of there <laughs> as a child, as a child. Right. And so I'd watch it. I enjoyed it. And, and that's sort of my first experience, but it's almost as though there was this, um, transformation as I grew into a young adult when Back to the Future 3, it was like I was seeing it for the first time, uh, one time when I was just watching it as a teen or young adult. And, um, it's quickly become, believe it or not, my favorite installment, at least my favorite sequel to Back to the Future. It's surpassed too in my mind now as being my favorite of the Back to the Futures. And after just watching it uh, before recording, I can say that's still true. And yeah, it still it still holds my favorite. There's there's a lot to love if you'll just let yourself love this movie. Agreed. I mean, my first experience, it, it wasn't anything special. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but it was probably part of a package deal with watching part two. 
Um, I don't know if I originally watched all three movies or if I saw the original and then later returned to the trilogy. So it, it's just, again, those movies that have always been a part of my film viewing experience. And I've always liked this one in particular. Like you, my affection has grown even more over the years as I've matured and with repeat viewings. And it it's just compared to part two, which is often so bleak and it's dark and it's confusing in some parts, uh, at least for a kid. And to contrast with that, you've got this one, which is just fun. Like, it returns to the the enjoyment and the the comedy of the first film. The second one has its funny moments, but it it doesn't fit into the comedy category. I don't think like the first one and the third one do. So it's it's more lighthearted in general, and it's just a, a more enjoyable overall experience to sit and watch. You know, that's really interesting. You say that because I was thinking I had a uh, a thought for the first time when watching three this time, which was that it's actually more. At times, it feels more like a direct sequel to part one than a sequel to part two. There's certain, there's certain plot elements that are absolutely essential. You need to see part two to get, um, the hoverboard, for example. It's just one, where did that come from? What is that? Um, and the Jennifer stuff, all the stuff with Flea at the end, as you mentioned, brief cameo. Um, very important to see part two. But in terms of setup, there were a lot of like direct homages, I think, and direct references and parallels which it's true are mimicked in 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 part two as well to some extent but this movie just feels like a second sequel to part one not necessarily a sequel to parts one and two if that makes sense that's how it felt to me this time anyway it does make sense and when we talked about part two a few episodes ago uh, I, I made the comment about how the the last part of that movie, when they return to 1955, is where it really, truly feels like a sequel to the first film, because you're returning to a familiar location, things are brighter and lighthearted again, and it, it's continuing those same elements. And this one, like you said, definitely continues those elements more from the first film than from the second. That being said, though it may not be my favorite or even second favorite of the trilogy, I enjoy part two. I just think a lot of people will sort of get the rose-colored glasses when it comes to the future elements of the film, because that stuff's really cool. That's what I liked about it. Yeah. yeah. In retrospect, I mean, that that's the big appeal of part two is the the future elements, and they really aren't that big a part in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, so yes, that's true. Part three is definitely my second favorite of the trilogy, and, you know, watching it today, I texted you about an hour into my viewing, and I said... Holy crap, I adore this movie. And I do. I, there's <laughs> this movie. I don't want to say it's my favorite. Back to the Future is still absolute my favorite, but it's a masterpiece. Part of me almost wonders if Back to the Future wasn't the original, if I might enjoy this one more <laughs> because it, it's just that kind of film. And Christopher Lloyd's long been my favorite actor because of this trilogy. And he is thrust into the spotlight in this one in a big way. And it's amazing. Yeah, um, I actually saw him speak at a uh, convention. I've, I've been wanting to bring this story up specifically for this podcast. Um, he was speaking at a, a Star Trek convention because he uh, played the villain in, I think, Star Trek III. Um, but he was, of course, talking about his extensive career. He got a lot of uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit questions and Adam's Family questions. But he got a couple Back to the Future questions. One of them was, which one was your favorite? And and he had to say three. And, and he absolutely was like... Yeah, I mean, for for the sheer um, 
expansiveness of the character and all the work that he got to do and he gets to dance and doc falling in love only works if you spend so much time setting up how he's not that guy you know the crazy mad scientist that they had spent uh, a very long time perfecting throughout the first two films is turned on his head when you see that the character just has even more depth so lloyd really enjoyed number three but the interesting thing, uh, just about the point you were making, Chad, is that uh, another person who was there in the audience at the convention um, asked him, okay, we understand that three is your favorite, but if you had to defend Back to the Future 2, like, I don't know, existence in, in the trilogy, what would you say? And he had to think about this for a while. Uh, you know, it took a moment. He's like, oh, I'm going to pause here. Uh, and then he said... That Back to the Future Part 2 is a natural extension of Part 1 in that, you know, it, it was always going to come down to what is the abuse, what is the potential for, you know, abusing time travel that's potentially inherent in human nature. And so he said, for that reason, Part 2 is important and, you know, a natural progression which I thought was really interesting. And then he's like, but yeah, and, and three is where we are able to kind of pull off the, the heavy, thick, you know, curtain veil and, and, and live a little again and, and love again and all this other stuff. So it's like, great. But that comment really put in perspective for me, I think the trilogy as a whole. And, and at that point, I had really uh, championed number three over number two. I was, I would almost never watch two in my trilogy DVD box set watchings, which I don't know why, because it's a great, fine film, superior to many others. But after that, I really began to appreciate what each movie brings to the saga and three especially, but I, I think two, that was sort of a redemptive comment about two, which made me really appreciate Three is allowed to be light um, because two was bleak. And and I think that that is a, sort of an important notion. Like perhaps what makes the films so widely respected is because they do touch on all of that uh, throughout their three-course run. And two is just the, the, you know, drew the short straw of not getting to be as playful um, as a result of that. I really like that. And I definitely agree. We talked about part two and I said, you know, one of the big takeaways from this film is the consequences to our actions and uh, that those are the darker aspects of that film. It very much sort of fits the original Star Wars trilogy of intro, dark sequel, and then lighthearted finale, just like Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So sure. Very, very cool. Let's talk about specific story stuff that we like here. For one thing, I, I like the as much as I enjoy some of the complexities of part two, I like the lack of complexity in this one. You're in a single location <laughs> almost the entire time. And it, it's such a fun location because they built this little town out in the desert and filmed it there. And so it, it, it feels so, uh, this is a terrible word, but it feels so organic. It feels like this is, <laughs> this is 1880s Hill Valley and it just works. It's, I, I like the location. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you, you will have noticed the setup, uh, line. Again, getting back to Back to the Future being all setups and payoffs, like, it's a masterclass in doing that for film. And, uh, part two, Doc happens to mention that, uh, he's always thought of roaming the old west. And of course, at the end of the film, it's revealed that's where he is. They take 1885, this random September morning, and turn it into, you know, the date or the week where the clock tower, 
that we all know and love was first, you know, kicked into gear. And, you know, they make it, they make this time and this era so absolutely special while still telling a very character focused story while still utilizing all of their principal and ton of extra cast members extremely well. And they do new stuff like the time machine, for instance. Like the reason they're trapped, I mean, the reason they stay here and don't go to three other time frames like they did, they could have tried to up one up themselves in part two, but they didn't. The reason they stay here is because they're stuck. I mean, the, the time machine buried in a cave, that's really cool. Having to push it via a steam powered locomotive because they tried pulling it with horses, that didn't work. That's really cool. It's just, it's new creative approaches to sort of the same problem solving that we've seen in prior films, such as not having a lightning bolt, uh, you know, worth of electricity or running out of gas or the car not starting, you know, all these other things. They're elements here, but they're paid off. They're not, they're not direct copies of previous films. They're allowed to organically move and move within the space and the time period. Right. It, it feels so much like a Back to the Future movie, but the, the location allows them to completely sort of subvert the tropes that they established in their previous two films because it's so far removed from the present day locations and the present day technology. And it feels like authentic Western to me. I mean, it doesn't feel hokey. I mean, they sort of poke fun at the <laughs> the hokey Westerns with Marty's initial quote unquote Western outfit that Doc dresses him and sends him <laughs> back in. Uh, but the whole rest of it, as soon as he's transported back, it feels like a Western. It feels, I mean, everything looks western the the clothes feel authentic uh the i mean mad dog tannin we'll talk about him more but everything just fits in and it still altogether feels like a back to the future film yeah and the the the, the thing that struck me uh in this film most was was the period acting um now they they've done it with the 50s in the first two films quite well you have these characters like um is it Lou at the cafe? Mm-hmm. Lou, milk chocolate, who's who's really, you know, kind of firmly rooted in the era. Uh, Lorraine's dad stands out as well, um, as well as George and Lorraine and all the kids, you know, children of the 50s very much. But you have like a full, constant feature film length performance by Mary Steenburgen as Clara Clayton, who never breaks from the time period where she's set in. And and that's actually special. You don't have Mary Steenburgen also playing herself in 85 or in 1985, I should say. And, you know, three other time eras. It's just her in that time period. And I think there's stakes because she is that anchor. You know, even uh, even Emmett in this film is, you know, you see the 55 doc and the 2015 to 1885 doc as well so they're playing double roles but mary steenburgen's performance is firmly rooted like she's a period actress or doing a period character and it just stays with it the whole film and i think that's special about this movie and i also returning to the the idea of setups and payoffs the opening 10 minutes of the movie is fabulous when it comes to establishing the tone and reminding us of things and first the, we get the cold open which is the stinger from the the previous film which i love and then we get the the really peaceful opening credits music that introduces the love theme and uh it, it's just a moment to sort of slow down and we we finally get to see marty sort of resting in between all the chaos <laughs> of the past couple of weeks of his life <laughs> the way i took it too is uh the, there's the camera's rotating around Doc's place, much like it does at the beginning of Back to the Future 1 with all the clocks. And there's there's this opportunity for great 
visual humor when, of course, Doc is awakened um, and then goes to to do his little voice recording. And Marty's kind of waking up in the background, but he's not supposed to be there. Um, and and Doc seeing him and freaking out in the first five minutes uh, is is hilarious. But it also, I think, in a way, I wrote in my notes that because 1955 Doc is immediately you know, launched into hysterics and calls him future boy, all the things we love from the first film uh, when he was skeptical about Marty. Because that's brought back in such full force, it allows us not to take the premise and plot too seriously still. Like, it reminds us, I think, that this film is a comedy. But again, like, that circumscope or or the, the rotation of the camera was, like, really spoke to me as being a direct uh, mapping of the first film. Yeah, I think that's true. And it also reminds us, hey, don't forget, he has the hoverboard that's going to be important later yeah, and, and stuff like that. And I'm glad you mentioned the future boy line because it's so it's like a, a very quick thing and he only says it once. But it is definitely 100% a callback to the first film. And that line makes me laugh every single time because it, it's so <laughs> ridiculous that he's returning to this thing uh, from the first film. Yeah, and Marty's wearing the hat too, or the helmet, the uh, the brainwave oh, reading. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we see the the toy car that caught on fire when yes. Doc did his experiment, and the model of Hill Valley that's not to scale is still there, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, which they recreate for eighteen eighty five, which I love. But yeah, so I mean, speaking of scenes, it doesn't get much better than that little shot when they're breaking into the cave of Baby Einstein with the uh, or Copernicus with the flashlight on his head the little flashlight helmet oh, right. um, it's just <laughs> the spelunking adventure and the initials on the cave just i mean it, giving very early on a lot of backstory to doc as a character you never you never really get who his influences are growing up or you know what his childhood was like but here he'll if you just listen he'll tell it to you the plot finally in the third installment has a chance to slow down enough to get some exposition that furthers the character, which I think is really neat. Well, let's go ahead and start talking about the characters. And, you know, the the last two films, we've talked about Marty first, but I think it's appropriate considering the the story (laughs) and the character focus. Let's start with Doc this time. So what do you have to say about Doc in this movie? Doc, Doc, Doc cannot hold his liquor at all (laughs) whatsoever. That's funny. I've never seen or heard of anyone having that reaction to whiskey, but uh, it it works. It's oddly fitting that this guy who's so accomplished, he's the human who invents time travel, can't even take a shot of liquor without passing right out. (laughs) It's just creative and hilarious and touching really, the nuance and layers that are added to Doc in this film and perfectly exploited by uh, Christopher Lloyd, giving giving him more to do was the absolute right right choice. And yet, for all of this stuff with Clara, his relationship with Marty is, is stronger than ever. And I think that's a, a thread throughout the entire film, even in the beginning when he's rereading his note uh, and he signs it, you know, your friend in time, Doc Brown, and he gets all teary eyed and he's like, I never knew I could write something so beautiful. <laughs> and Marty's like, I knew it. I know Doc. It's great. But like, it's all still set up in payoff. Like his love, his heart, it's going to be, you know, that's the theme of the, it's the central thesis of this movie is Doc's heart and he gets to have one. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that we should all celebrate. 
Yeah, Doc is the focus here, like we said, but it's more than just the same Doc being more prominent in the film. It's it's the same Doc and then some. You said this, it's exploring more of his sort of backstory and exploring more of just really who he is beyond a scientist. And him and Marty sort of switch roles in this movie, whereas especially in part two, Doc was the one thinking scientifically and unselfishly and all that stuff regarding the almanac. Mm. It's his turn to be a little bit selfish. It's his turn to be a little less than logical for once because this is something falling in love is such a foreign concept to him. It's funny watching him express sort of this incredulity at the idea of falling in love at first sight. And then watching him fall in love at first sight five minutes later, <laughs> uh, because it, it is unexplained. It, it, it's just something that happens. You find the right person, you meet the right girl. It just hits you like a, like a bolt of lightning, as Marty so Don't eloquently say says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. And and the plotting is so it's so clever that Doc should be destined to fall in love with a woman who would have died had he not been there, because it, it's the absolute perfect closure of the time loop. Of, you know, this is a paradox. If she, Clara would have, had she not been fated to die, been destined to marry and have children who have children who have children who have children, you know, who are very prominent, it would really mess with the time stream. Hill Valley in 1985, a hundred years later, might not even be the same. Depends on who her kids were. But the fact that she was going down that ravine, um, and, and fated to die and Doc saves her gives him the perfect partner, I think. And it, it, it prevents, it solves that problem. In addition to her persona being so feeling, being so caring, being so altruistic, bringing out Doc's own best qualities as well, making him smile. And she loves science and he's never met a girl who loves science. Although I can't say he hangs out in many social halls that I imagine. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's just, they're a perfect fit. And I love how easily it works into the overall plot of the film to give him this partner in Clara. Lloyd's performance in this film is possibly or very probably my very favorite Christopher Lloyd performance. Yeah. It's just it's a powerhouse from him. He he fits into the role that's so familiar to us, but it's again so different. He expresses such great emotion through his face and his eyes. Absolutely. There there's moments when he sees Claire and the, the way he looks at her, the way he smiles at her, especially at the end when he's about to climb into the DeLorean and she rings the the train horn Toot-toot. and she leans out the window and says, I love you and this look on his face, like it's the the happiest moment of his life to yeah. have somebody reciprocate this foreign feeling for him that he's only just now trying to understand. Uh, It's great. I I love, I love doc. I love that he finally gets to have a relationship like this. And as you said earlier, his relationship with Marty stronger than ever. I really enjoy the scene when they first meet up in the old West after he saves Marty from uh, the, the hanging by Biff. Those boots, they just step in the (laughs) foreground. You're like, I know who this is. And his line, his bad, killer line we'll shoot the fleas off a dog's back at 500 yards tannin and it's pointed straight at your head with his <laughs> sniper rifle i mean come on he's totally and i love this about doc is he's absolutely abused the rules that he held so close to before about i mean it would be a paradox to have a refrigeration unit in your uh shed but he does just so he can have ice you know why because he can he's a scientist and that's what they do man they give themselves life uh, over to life's pleasures when they're smart enough to invent it and it is in some ways 
very much a doc in his retirement years as as I think he says in this film he cares less about those some of those rules as he did even in part 2 he was very adamant about that type of stuff but this time he's so his swagger is because he's using his knowledge to the advantage and, and, and even flaunting it. I mean, you know, later in the bar, I know he knows he's leaving. Otherwise, he would never do that. But he recklessly gives a bunch of saloon uh, patrons the entire history of the United States up to, you know, the next hundred years, I'm sure, or something close to it. So right. he's, he's, he's able to be more relaxed in this film and... And he was, he was never uptight. He was always the, the one who, who was getting our hero, Marty, back to the, the future and to where he needed to go. But you're, you're absolutely right. Like there is a, a switching of the roles. I've never quite thought about it like that. Like Marty kind of takes a back seat, but Marty is the one who's called on to like get up on time, get them to the train and, and really just like he wants to save Doc. So he's doing it out of love, but he is the more fair minded one here. The doc we see in this movie is somebody who isn't expected to go anywhere else with his life. He's been living in the Old West at this point for eight months because yeah. he zapped back to January 1st. And he he fits in so naturally, but he's still all the same, still doc. And he is very much still a scientist and cheating the rules a little bit. And when Marty first comes back and he's rescued him and he says, you know, Marty, I gave you explicit instructions not to come back, but to go directly to eight or 1985. And and then there's this pause and he says, but man, it's so good to see you. And they have this yeah. hug. And it, it, it again, it just displays their friendship on such, in such a big way. And I love that element of the story as well, because Marty, I truly believe Marty would have gone straight to 1985 from 55 had it not been that you know doc is going to be dead six days after writing that letter like you want to give your friend the best retirement that you can and there's this real essence this real feeling of being robbed of a good life uh in his friend and that's why he goes back it's all character driven like marty doesn't go to 85 to be a cowboy in the west shoe horses and um pretend to be clint eastwood he goes back for his friend who is going to be robbed of life by yet another tannin back in the 1800s so it, it's it's such a beautiful reason to go and to have these two characters pair up again because doc sure as hell doesn't want to die either in seven days you know i'm sure eventually everyone makes their peace but not in seven days and not that way. Exactly. And uh, a good glimpse into Marty's motivation. Before we talk more about Marty, just a little bit, what about Clara? Like for me, I love that she is a perfect match for Doc. You know, like she's a fair woman. She's beautiful. And they, they get along so famously. But she also is smart. And she does stand up for not just herself, but also for Doc at the the festival when uh, Buford takes over and is trying to dance with her and she, yeah. she gives him a mighty kick to the shin. Yeah. I mean, she she's a tough cookie besides just being a, a pretty match for Doc. Let, let me just let me just illustrate for you the timeline of my childhood and uh, Mary Steenburgen's character of Clara. Why is she mad at the doc? <laughs> why is <laughs> why is she mad? No, I don't like this woman. She's angry at Doc. He just told her the truth, and she doesn't realize it. I'm referring, to, of course, to the fight scene. And then, oh, they get to be happy ever after. Oh, that's mushy. That's gross. Till uh, flash forward till today. Oh my God, this woman is brilliant. She's independent. She stands up for herself. She's capable. She's allowing herself to fall in love. She's altruistic. She's a school teacher. She chooses in the end 
to forgive and and sort of let her anger drop and give it another chance. She gives in to her intuition of, you know, her first intuition of Emmett's character. She's great. She's absolutely the greatest new character. And that's saying something because I like a lot of these old timey people. Clara, I just couldn't see it as a child. And now I fully appreciate. And I think every time I see this movie, I tell myself and say to myself almost as an act of attrition how much like how amazing she is in this film and how amazing Clara is as a character and important too because I feel like it's very easy for young boys to overlook her as an actress and a a character in this film because they're all about Doc and Marty but she's a crucial part of this story that's being told and it's and and yeah just watching her now for me is is such a joy. And she's one of the, well, pretty much the only character in the trilogy who actually teaches Doc. They have a scene where they're stargazing together. and She's his equal. Right. She's, she's definitely his equal and just as knowledgeable and maybe not the same areas, but in other areas where they can, they complement each other in that way. And uh, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but it's worth mentioning that the kiss between Doc and Claire in this movie was Christopher Lloyd's very first on-screen kiss. So... <gasps> <laughs> very special very special you know what i never i never wondered that i'm, ne- I'm never like hmm, i wonder what christopher <laughs> lloyd's first on-screen kiss was <laughs> but i'm glad it was i'm glad it was with her i wonder what hers is now but i i don't wonder too hard but yeah it's just so funny and lovely and i wonder if he ever got a second on screen because he's not really a romantic character actor like portraying a romantic hero i remember him uh seeing him in theaters as a kid in my favorite martian and gosh, what else? Angels in the Outfield. Angels in the Outfield, exactly. And th- and that, thank you for bringing that up. I wanted to bring that up. Even that film, you know, I was like, Christopher Lloyd, amazing guy. But this film, I just can't say that Angels in the Outfield is my favorite Chris Lloyd performance because this film just blows it right out of the water. It does for sure. Now let's talk about Marty some because like I said, he, he did roll switch a little bit and he's the one who has to think logically and scientifically for the first time. And you mentioned his motivations a little bit earlier. It's not insensitivity that he is so sort of not dismissive of Clara, but he, he's really sort of wary of her because she is a distraction for Doc and he realizes that he he is concerned for Doc's well-being first and foremost because the whole reason he came back was because Doc died six days later. And knowing that Tannen is still around, how can you honestly leave your friend behind with a person like Tannen still floating around? So I think everything Marty does in this film may come across as insensitive, but really, again, it's just a, a display of how close this friendship is between these two characters. Yeah, and it's also an arc of maturity for him. He really, I mean, this is the film where... Not until the very end of it, but at the end of it, he's overcome this whole, you know, don't want him to call me chicken thing. Um, He's really learned, and I think it comes from staring at a photograph of a tombstone, which could be your own. He's learned not to give in to that, not to be so uh, susceptible to provocation in that way. And this journey that he's on is really all about being with the ones you, like, if you're with the ones you love and care about, it really doesn't matter what other people think. Like, that's a message, you know, that you can get from this film. And he's he's on that journey. He makes that realization and he's able to, you know, escape and go back to Jennifer and, and have her. And with the ending of this film, too, gives such a hopeful picture. But for Marty, it, the, the ending is only for Marty 
now that he's overcome the issue. I mean, we see the accident with the Rolls Royce. Come on. I mean, that was called out specifically in part two. Who expected to see it? We see it and we see that Marty has changed. And it's because of his interaction with Doc. It's because of this, you know, this part of the story that that Marty, something in part three has allowed Marty to overcome his failings that were, I'm sure you mentioned this during part two, but I mean, the whole chicken thing was like blatantly just introduced in part two. It was never a one thing, but he overcomes it. It's set up and payoff. And, and it, we like to see that happening in our character. I think that's probably the, the biggest credit you can give to part two is that it sets up this chicken arc. And gives it, it, it gives Marty something to grow on in this film. Yeah, you're right. It, it isn't mentioned so much in part one, or it isn't mentioned at all in part one. But you know, part one is a week of Marty's life. It's perfectly uh, reasonable that we don't know everything about him, and that opportunity didn't pop up. And so it does feel slightly shoehorned in in part two, but that is only to this film's benefit because it feels like a continuation and we see his growth. We see him struggling between caring or not caring what others think of him. And by the end of the film, we see that he has learned and that this, this overarching thread from the past film and the the film before that even is it, it leaves him a better person at the end of it, learning from his mistakes and standing up for himself in a certain way. Yeah, and taking it back to part one, that photograph, right? Telling him what the future is going to be or not. Uh, in part one, it's the photo of him and his siblings. And in, in this one, it's the photo of the gravestone. But there's still this photograph. And I guess in part two, it's newspaper. But holding a, a Polaroid sort of thing is 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 a great type throwback to, to part one, I felt. And Marty, the the other thing about part one that, that just makes me laugh so much in part three is that Clint Eastwood is totally the replacement Calvin Klein. Like, and I, and I wonder if, I wonder if the Clint Eastwood joke hasn't aged better than the Calvin Klein joke, because I'm sure that it was really funny in 85 and 89 when Calvin Klein was a very well-known big designer. I'm sure people still know him. I get it. But I think that that joke was funnier than having him go around in the fifties and everybody call him Calvin. And I think that this joke has aged better of, you know, we still know Clint Eastwood. Maybe it's just because he's a bigger movie star. I, I don't know. What do you think about that, though? Because having him run in, around in 85 as Clint Eastwood, and of course the payoff at the end with Eastwood Ravine, and all the fun that they have with his name, him being Clint Eastwood, to these people in the 80s, is a much funnier joke, and it allows a lot of the lightheartedness that comes from an otherwise very serious Marty. I do think it's a lot funnier than the Calvin Klein joke, partially because it was set up so wonderfully in part two with Biff watching the, I think it's Fistful of Dollars. Or, oh, yeah, with, with actually Eastwood. Yeah, yeah actually <laughs> watching a Clint Eastwood movie in part two in the hot tub of Biff Tower. So having that set up previously and that sort of leads to the the climax of this film. But then it was funny to consider exactly what repercussions Marty's taking on of Eastwood's name would have on the actual Clint Eastwood in the future and whether he would have actually been named Clint Eastwood because who's going to name their son after this historically coward, <laughs> this <laughs> historical figure uh, full of cowardice. Everybody will say Clint Eastwood's the biggest yellow belly in the West. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, that was It was a fun thing to think of because, I mean, we may not even have a Clint Eastwood if Marty had not so successfully acted out bravely. 
that's presented as stakes. That's the highest stake. That's <laughs> right. why he has to go out there. I mean, he has to go out there to save Doc, but I mean, that they both go out together, but he's like, oh yeah, I shouldn't screw with time. I shouldn't mess with the timeline and erase Clint Eastwood's existence while I'm at it. So it's almost to preserve the timeline, but it's just, it's so funny. Everyone calling him Clint Eastwood the entire film. It's so funny. <laughs> And it's also funny, <laughs> you know, I talked about how well Doc really fits into the Western time period because it is established that it's his favorite time period. And after spending so much time there, he he just sort of blends in while still being himself. Marty is fresh into this time period and he does not fit in, especially at the start when he's dressed in that, that cartoonish cowboy outfit and he's got his <laughs> Nikes on and uh, he, he uses modern day colloquialisms like far out and stuff like that <laughs> what did he mean about that it was right in front of him <laughs> exactly but then it's also fun to see the areas where he does fit in like the the wild gunman scene where first he is using the wrong hand and <laughs> burton gilliam plays a gun salesman and he, he just sort of scoffs at him and laughs like oh my goodness you, you really are terrible at this and then marty says give me give me one more try and he switches hands and blows everybody away like with his gunslinging ability <laughs> and it's uh, another flashback to part two where he talks about how uh he was a crack shot at wild gunman and it's funny how a video game <laughs> sort of transfers uh his skills into the real world setting yeah how often how often do you get to do that <laughs> to really try your your crack shot in real life I mean, it's the Indians all over again, right? It's <laughs> Those Indians won't be there. Oh, uh, Indians! <laughs> what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, okay. And, and and actually having a showdown, again, it speaks to the, the brilliance of this film succeeding as a Western. Um, but it's a Western with such a 1990 touch. Like, the characters know they're from the future, and the film knows that the two main characters are from the future. So they give, like, a, such an honest tribute to the earlier time period while still getting to make those jokes like far out. And I'm trying to think what else uh, it compares to, but I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, the rerun comment from part one. Right. What's a rerun? You know, all this other stuff of future knowledge filtering back to these people, who, especially Maggie and Seamus McFly, who don't know what to make of it. And again, the bartender, or not the bartender, the the bar uh, patrons, who, or or no, it's uh, Buford's men who are like Nikkei. What what is that? Some kind of Asian talk, um, you know, about his feet because he won't change his shoes. All these potential paradoxes, but we're there because at the end of the day, these films are an adventure, and you know, you're you're gonna break a few timeline rules, and I think that the film gets its fun back when it does that sort of thing. We were like, oh, man, Marty, take off your boots. Oh, but the bear got the boots. You know, he can't. He doesn't have boots anymore. I want to circle back real quick to the Polaroid that you were talking about, because I think that that is the ultimate stroke of genius in this film, because it's a familiar element like you were talking about from the first film, and the second film with the, the changing picture in the first one and the changing newspaper titles in the second one. But this one is almost like a next level interpretation of that, because doesn't just disappear. So we have the tombstone with the name and the date. And then later the name disappears, but the date and the tombstone itself still remain. And that that's not really an element that we've seen before. We've just seen a literal before and after. And here there's sort of an in-between step that that represents a potential of what may happen. And I really like that they conceived something so unique as that Polaroid being a sort of barometer for what the outcome of the situation may be 
Yeah, and you can you can overthink it as I tried to do once or twice about that photo being just the example of somebody in 1955 taking that photo from that vantage point at that exact moment. Even though Marty could die in the past, it was his past self who took that photo. So his past self is always going to be able to take that photo, which is why that photo itself doesn't just disappear. Like, the photo wouldn't exist if his dying would cause him to prevent that from being taken in the first place. So it's cool. Like, they just worked out the time logic of it, is all I'm trying to say. And the fact that that picture can still exist, like, safe to exist, and up until the very last moment, even though Doc doesn't get shot in the belly, which would cause him to die on Monday from three days prior. He can still get shot the day of the shootout, the day of the showdown. Um, and, and so it makes sense when Marty checks it, that the name could still be either's of, of theirs, um, because Buford's going to shoot doc instead. So it's, it's, it's all really, really, really smart. <laughs> it is. And while we're still talking about Marty, I just want to briefly talk about Seamus and Maggie. Because Leia Thompson still has something to do in this movie, even though this is his paternal great-great-grandmother. So it doesn't really make sense that she's portraying uh, that character. Yeah, I guess not. (laughs) Whatever. It it doesn't matter. It gives us our classic waking up scene with a new twist because you're my, you're my, wait, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Don't you be forgetting the missus. And, you know, their primary role, we didn't need to have McFly's in this movie uh, from that time period, but really they helped to further the the chicken thread from the previous film because they introduced the character of Martin, possibly Marty's namesake, or certainly a strange coincidence of this character who suffers from a similar confidence problem that Marty does and ultimately pays the price for not adapting and not ignoring what other people have to say about him. So uh, that that is their real primary function, and it, it is fun that Marty is able to meet up with his great-grandfather, and he pees on him, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's a new spin on the go back in time and kill your grandfather. It's, it's, it's the grandfather paradox. Well, if your great-grandfather, while he's an infant, pees on you, what does that mean for you? Well, nothing. <laughs> it just means you need to clean up. It's It's such a fun, they very clearly, like, knowingly <laughs> did that. Um, so it's, it's just a blast. This film is such a blast. Now, what about Mad Dog Tannen? Thomas F. Wilson giving his best performance in the whole trilogy, I think, for sure. I, I agree. I love him as 50s Biff. I love him as 50s Biff real hard, but, um, yeah, Buford, Buford's where it's at. Honestly, I I wouldn't say this is an Oscar worthy performance from him, but I think it was like (laughs) award worthy. This is, I mean... It it feels so authentic. It it feels like this grimy, old school Western villain uh, that you would see in a normal Western film. It it doesn't really feel like Biff, but at the same time, it does because he he has those tanning characteristics of being stupid but mean. <laughs> hey McFly, <laughs> the Hey McFly is there. He he loses count while counting at the end of the uh, the film before the showdown. He he messes up his jokes. I'm gonna shoot you down yeah. like a duck, like a dog. Before it's like a dog, dog before <laughs> dog. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the brilliance of this role is is how different and unique it is. And it, it's important to note Thomas F. Wilson is a character actor, and Biff is not who he is as a person. 
normally. So, so I mean, when he plays Biff, he's putting on a character of that bully, just like when he plays uh, Soft and Shattered Biff from 85. It's, a, you know, a character. But Buford is where he really absolutely gets to shine as this, I don't want to say overacted, but certainly a caricature of uh, an Old West villain. Uh, again, just being so mean and having all these, you know, this attitude and 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 just this air of the criminal around him, it, it because the film needs to glorify this period of time in some way. They really, I think, lean into and lean on this uh, Buford character as you know a crutch for the time period. Like I think he's he and Mary Steenburgen are working side by side to really cement. I think that that this time did really happen and did exist are there any other characters you wanted to talk about bartender (laughs) chester the bartender again i mean you know no small parts for for anyone chester the bartender played by uh, actor matt clark is just is just amazing and i just love so much how when when all the people in the bar too are clearing out when uh when Marty calls him mad dog they just know and like it's those little moments like that and and Chester like his closeness he's he's the neighborhood bartender it's it's probably the only saloon in town and he knows Emmett real well and you he says he has these lines like you know what happened to you on the 4th of July you know he's he's really he cares about his patrons and he cares about his bar and I'll be damned if that's not a three-dimensional lovely you know little little bow to put on this time period is is having a character like a bartender with a heart of gold yeah him and the the three bar patrons I think are really (laughs) the ones that seal the deal as far as cementing this in the western time period because you've got these three actors it's Pat Buttram Harry Carey Jr. and Dub Taylor, who are known for their roles in westerns, that like those are <laughs> voices and people that people are familiar with because they've seen them in actual western films. Especially Pat Buttram, who voiced the sheriff of Nottingham in the Disney Robin Hood movie, oh my and gosh. also voiced one of the bullets in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the cartoon bullets. And uh, I believe he actually voiced a character in. The Rescuers as well. Um, so it's a, it's a very familiar voice, not only to people who've watched Westerns before, because he, he really has that sort of Western voice and persona, but also to kids who've watched Disney movies before. It's great to have these characters who are naturally established as being part of this time period in this movie to sort of seal the deal. It's so funny because the timing doesn't quite work out, but uh, having Strickland as the as the sheriff show up and tell his son, remember that word, son, discipline, it cannot be Strickland from 55, but it has to be that guy's dad. So I guess it's his grandfather that we're looking at, or eh, maybe if that works, I'm not quite sure. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it'd probably be just Strickland's grandfather is the sheriff. Because uh, if his kid's like 10 or 11 and 85 and Strickland's, wait, that's 70 years by 55. Yeah, I think there's another generation between, because that's not Principal Strickland as the kid. No, no, not at all. Uh, and I think if you look at the Back to the Future, the game uh, made by Telltale, there's a character introduced in the 20s named Edna Strickland, 
who's part of the same family. Oh, I hated her in that game. <laughs> it is awful. <laughs> yes, I think I don't think you're supposed to like her, but uh, that I guess that that accounts for the the time period and the the generations. But I'm glad you mentioned him because. It, it does sort of plant the seeds of Mr. Strickland from 55 and 85 and his penchant for discipline. And especially in a deleted scene uh, where Tannen actually kills the marshal in front of his son. I forgot about that. Yeah. And before he dies, he once again stresses the word discipline uh, before he, he passes away. So it's a small thing, but it, it really gives some credence to why Mr. Strickland at Hill Valley High might have uh, a stick up his butt so far <laughs> because his family has always been stressing discipline in Hill Valley. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a character discussion if we didn't talk about the clock very briefly. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Having it take its first breath. I mean, it, it, the clock is very much the clock tower is a character, just like the DeLorean is a character in in these movies. And we've seen it take its last breath. In fact, that's the cornerstone of this entire series. But taking its first breath was a real unexpected joy. Nobody ever expects that sort of thing. And we we got it. And just Doc's line of, you know, it's real fitting that you and I should be here to witness this is akin to his line from part two about there being a single date where the entire time stream could, you know, come together on. This is another one of those moments where you just feel like these two were always destined to be here to see this. And, you know, I don't know how much a major blockbuster mainstream films these days give you the impression that their characters, like I'm thinking of Marvel, Marvel movies in particular too. All the events and places that they go and action sequences that they have. Have you once thought like, you know, oh man, Thor is, is really was always destined to be in this showdown with this character right now in this moment. Like, no, because the films aren't about that, but this film is like back to the future. You get such a love for these characters and such a, an appreciation for this fictional town that having them get like live to see this and then go off on their adventure is very like romanticized and beautiful. It's so fitting and so great that they were able to find a way to fit the clock tower in to a movie that took place a hundred years previous. And it's so great that they're able to actually take a picture with the clock before it's inserted into the clock tower. Yeah, and that's a gift that he gives to Marty at the end of the film. Right, your friend in time. Partner in time, I think it says. Partner, yeah, partner in time. It's just such a beautiful bow to to wrap up this trilogy and it, it's just it's beautiful like I was at New York Comic Con uh 2 years ago I want to say it was and there was some kind of back to the future um, interview with Zemeckis, uh, I think it was, or maybe it was Bob Gale. I think it was both of them. It was Webstream. But, uh, Bob Zemeckis was up there and he was like, you know, I get asked some of these questions, uh, all the time. Like, will there ever be a sequel? And he just like, deadpan was just like, no, let me set the record straight that there will never, as long as I am alive, ever be another sequel to the Back to the Future. We said everything we wanted to say in the first three. It's it's perfectly contained. We will not ever make a sequel. And, you know, they would love to reboot the property. I think I read every once in a while that they'd love to reboot this stuff. But And, and why wouldn't they? They're such great films. But there's a certain stoic heroism to the, the, the writers and creators of this 
film series, which is rare in Hollywood, first of all, and second of all, which, you know, has somehow stood up to the man and made it so that, you know, 30 years later, or 27 for, for part three, these are the films that we have to go back to. We do not have uh, a remake yet, and we won't as long as Zemeckis is alive. I love him for that, and I truly hope it it's not the day after he dies or even the day he dies that they announce a, a reboot or remake or sequel Ugh. or anything like that. I, I think these movies stand the test of time so incredibly well, and there, there are lessons to take away, and there are characters and music and everything to enjoy just the way it was. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it'll happen eventually, but for now, I'm yeah. I'm glad that these are the three that we have. You know, it's so funny because uh, there was a part of the story I wanted to mention, but it is the ending, so I wanted to save it till now. But I think that part three really jumps the shark in the very last few moments of the film. Maybe you agree <laughs> with the not only not only the steam-powered time machine, the steam-powered locomotive time machine, but the steam-powered locomotive hover-converted time machine, uh, which means that... Doc and Clara and their children have been to the future first and somehow made, built some kind of rapport where Doc was able to, to, you know, get them to hover convert this train. Or maybe he did it himself. I don't know. It looks like he probably had seven or five years or so with those kids to do that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's an element that, that the video game, I'm glad you mentioned the Telltale game really touched on, which was Doc leaving himself resources in various time periods. I guess we see this in part two with all the money, the suitcase of money that he has from every year. I mean, Doc would have had to travel to a number of years to get that, to amass that. And there's just no indication in the rest of the films of him doing that. But somehow he gets the resources to hover convert an existing steam train into a locomotive just for the very last shot of the film, which is a happy ending for that character. And I think it's a stretch. Like, I, I think that's definitively jumping the shark. I mean, it's admirable that they choose that for their last scene because it's like, well, we jumped the shark. Okay, now we're doing the natural thing that you should do when you jump the shark, which is end it. I, I don't know if I would particularly call it jumping the shark. I see where you're coming from. Uh, <laughs> because if, if you stand, if you take any element of Back to the Future, I think you can pick it apart until it, it just doesn't make sense. You can, I mean, even in the first film, as a standalone, you can take and say, look at this plot hole, look at this plot hole. Really? I think you can. <laughs> not, not go into the details now, but there, there are certainly things where if you think about them, maybe they don't hold up, but it's not stuff that bothers me. I think, the 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 credits of a good film are if if you can overlook its flaws you know it's a good movie right yeah yeah it just it's it's this is the thing that changed for me is as a kid you're like oh my god a flying steam train that's time machine that's the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life and now as an adult i'm like but wait a minute <laughs> how did he do that <laughs> like so much time but he's made of time he makes time so there's that but we do get the the excellent line, where are you going next, Doc? Back to the future? And he says, nope, already been there. And then it's revealed that it's it's flying. And I mean, I, I love that. I, I can see how it might be a step too far and it doesn't really hold to scrutiny. But uh, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Especially because he just told Marty, he told Marty throughout all of this film and some of the last film to destroy the time machine. So why is he giving his children the perfect Christmas present to especially knowing those kids' personalities, as we do from that shot you sent me in the uh, in the text message <laughs> thread. Uh, they're gonna abuse time like it's nobody's business. 
And so, yeah, I don't think it works that he shows up in a time machine because he's just told Marty to destroy the time machine all film. But we want Doc to have a happy ending, so that's the sacrifices. Otherwise, Marty and he would never meet. He'd have to send him another letter. God, I would love if three ended with that same guy from the end of two, though. The the Western Union guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or his kid. Are you? Mart? wait, it's you. You know, and he, like, sees him again. But there'd be no other way to communicate. So this was, of course, the best part. And Doc being able to give Jennifer advice. Jennifer and Doc having screen time together is very unexpected in this film. Happens last minute. But you love it. And he really is able to guide them. Um, I think give them guidance with that great parting line, which you quoted in the beginning of the of the episode. Let's talk about the music just a little bit, because I think that Alan Silvestri brings sort of his best work to or for the trilogy in this film, because it's a little bit of everything. We we get the the main theme from the first film. We get some of the like the low timpani foreboding roles in this one that we got in the second film. But then we also get a very Western sounding score in several aspects. So what do you what do you think of the music here? I agree. It's Alan Silvestri's best. It's the best Back to the Future soundtrack. Um, there is, and it's, and it's because of its complexity. And you, you get, as you say, the original theme. You also get the original theme in harmonica, like, which that's, that wasn't a thing we knew we wanted. Um, but it's, <laughs> but it's delightful. And, you know, it really, really sells the, uh, I want to say colonial, but that's wrong. Uh, this earlier time, of the old west it it just does for reasons of the instrumentation it fits the era somehow and yeah everything with um the train which is a, a there's there's a three-part track uh on on the soundtrack called the train part one part two part three and it's the entire extended sequence which what a what a finale for this film by the way is you know the eventual pushing of the DeLorean off the cliff and having to go back and get Clara and, and all of that. Amazing, but it's scored so excellently. The music that just all the the riffs and trips and references and notes that are hitting your ears, it's, it's such a wonderful montage of where the entire series has gone. And I think it serves as not just a finale musical piece for the film, but for the series as well. It's It's balls to the wall. Everything's out there. This is beautiful Back to the Future score right now. I think Point of No Return, which I believe is maybe part two of that three part. That's that sounds right. Yeah, that I think that's possibly my overall favorite track from the whole trilogy because it takes the main theme. It takes the the bits of Clock Tower parts one and two from the first soundtrack. Yeah. It takes the Western music and it mixes it all together wonderfully in a fantastic finale to the movie. And it's it's exciting. It's breathtaking. It's just a wonderful sequence in all respects. And as far as the Western music itself goes, I, it, it's immediate as soon as Marty is transported back to 1885. The very first shot is the Indians because uh, fourth <laughs> dimensions and all that. And it, it automatically you get this very tribal sounding Western music that, that befits being chased by Indians. I mean, it, it's wonderful. It's very magnificent 70 uh, at times, which is intentional, of course. Yes. Um, and I, I love the love theme. As I said earlier, you hear it during the opening credits of the film as they're sleeping at Doc's house. And then the first time you hear it in context of the film is when Doc and Claire are meeting after he's rescued her and they're at her house. It, it's a gorgeous love theme. It, it's beautiful. It's sweet. It it It's one of my favorite themes from the trilogy. And uh, I, I just, I love the music here and Sylvester. It, it's very sort of Copeland. Aaron Copeland uh, is known for these big sort of Americana 
pieces. And this fits right in the vein of that in many ways. So, yeah. Yeah, I I think this tops his serendipity score for me. High praise. But only just. (laughs) (laughs) Serendipity is a great movie. Everybody should see it. Yes. And listen to our episode over that. Yeah. Uh, Now let's sort of round out, bring it home with relevance and takeaways. So what, what is your big takeaway or one of your takeaways from the movie? You know, this Doc and Marty friendship is has really reached its fruition, and we, we've seen both of them be, you know, what you described as sort of sort of selfish. We've, we've both seen them now have selfish tendencies at times, Marty in part two with the Almanac and Doc in part three with Clara, and I think that that's an important lesson about friendship is there is that give and take, and there is that fluctuation at times of friends being selfish, but especially, you know, too, in a, in a mentorship, in an uneven in terms of age friendship, the great love and respect they have for each other as equals that transcend time and age and all that stuff is really important. And I think that um, it's an example of friendship done right. And and Marty in the end gets to save his Doc, his friend. And Doc in turn is able to kind of inspire Marty, you know, in into his future. So yeah, takeaways are just, you know, what Doc said in the end, your future is what you make it, even though Doc is the man who can make it <laughs> in his own image. But it, it really, I think, resonates that just that to, to love the ones, um, to, to tell the ones that you love, that you love them and spend as much time with them as you can. Right. I wrote down the idea of letting your heart run your life sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've seen sometimes you do have to be smart and unselfish. Like in the example with the Almanac, the, that was clearly an instance where Marty needed to sort of put aside his selfish endeavors. And because he didn't, the whole rest of the movie happened (laughs) and this movie as a result. But in this one, we see Doc and we see that he he shows us that sometimes the opposite is okay. Some specifically for love and both platonic love, his, his friendship with Marty and that, that strong relationship that they have throughout the trilogy and also his romantic love for Clara, where in the end, I, I love the moment where he finally is able to rescue Clara and they're sort of drifting off into the sunset. Well, not the sunset because it's eight in the morning, but, uh, drifting off on the hoverboard with her in his arms and they're looking at each other lovingly. And yeah, it's just a great moment. And it's just an example of Doc maybe it wasn't the smartest thing to do and i mean he doesn't belong there in all technicalities but he's fallen in love so it it's befitting that he gets to spend a lot rest of his life with her going back to what i said earlier too about her being a person out of time like the fact that she was supposed to have died means that it wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been any consequences to the time stream for her for him to take her with them to the future i know it doesn't work out that they go back to 85 right away but this idea that he can have her as a partner and, 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 and have these children with her and it not destroying the time stream is really appealing because she would have just died. There would have been no more uh, of her. So the fact that they're together and traveling through time, I mean, they've been to the far future enough to get this hover conversion. Again, I'm overthinking it, but, you know, just pursuing the one you love and, and I don't know, finding that person too who, for, who, whose life you can save. I don't know. It's sort of touching. And then there's Marty's whole lesson of don't let what others think dictate how you live your life. So you have the the continued chicken plot line, but this time Marty has Doc there in the moment to sort of warn him a little bit. Though Doc doesn't give away details, he says, you know, Marty, you got to do what you got to do. 
Um, and we all make decisions that influence oh the outcome of God. our lives. Yeah, that was great when he gets real with Marty and he nearly tells him. Like, well, he does say he said, that's how you get in that accident in the future. He reveals that he's been watching Marty closely and he knows the intimate details, which which actually they're mentioned in part two, but only when Jennifer is overhearing Doc Doc already knew and Doc in part two goes ahead to the future again, you know, his son's in jail, Marty's son's in jail, and he figures out, oh, next week your daughter tries to break him out and she gets twenty years. You know, he's just paid such close attention to Marty and it's not driven home in many times or many instances except when he nearly lets slip or does let slip that He's watched closely enough to know that Marty's hubris or his his ego will be his undoing, and it comes out in a true moment of friendship between them when he tells him. And uh, you know, it's not why Marty doesn't race flee, but it it's certainly I think a contributing factor. And then you also have Seamus, who tells again the story of Martin, who shares a name with Marty, shares a temperament with Marty, and dies because he couldn't get over it. And so it, that that in itself is almost like a parable for Marty. And it ultimately, uh, one of my favorite moments for Marty across the trilogy is when he goes into the final fight against Mad Dog, but it's not to defend his honor or reputation at this point. He's already said in the bar before he and Doc escape out the back that, you know, I don't care what he thinks. I don't care what anyone else thinks. He's an asshole. Exactly. <laughs> and so he he's going into that final fight not to de defend his own honor, but to defend Doc, to defend his friend who's being threatened by these people. And if he doesn't intervene, then, I mean, Doc's going to get shot, which is why he went back to the Old West in the first place, was to save Doc. So I like that that change. It's not to prove that he's not chicken. It's to stand up for his friend. I like that a lot. And he uses his wits to do it. I mean, the bulletproof vest. He uses... It's not about the fist fighting, although he does break into some pretty impressive fist fighting um, yes. in the end. But he's able to use his brain power to overcome uh, the adversity at first. So I think that's probably a lesson to take away as well. And then, you know, you already mentioned this quote, but I think it's sort of an overarching takeaway from the trilogy as a whole is that your future is what you make of it. There's nothing that is set in stone due to our circumstances in life or expectations from other people for ourselves or anything like that. Every choice we make changes us and or the world for the better or for worse. So I think one of the biggest takeaways is that we should strive to make choices that that's going to lean towards the better and uh, really just try and take a hand in our lives and do what we can to make it and the world around us better. So. Absolutely. Well, cool. How about any final thoughts for part three and for the trilogy as a whole? Yeah. I Since this film, since seeing it for the first time, I've been wondering a question uh, that I'll give as my final thought here. Um, and I haven't gotten the answer to it, but uh, do cars, do all cars fit on all railroad tracks? Uh, that's a good question. I actually was considering that as well. I wondered, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the actual train crash was done with a scale model, of course. It's, it's all so perfect that the, uh, DeLorean's wheels, obviously without tires on them, fit on the railroad. Like, that's lucky. Uh, and I just wonder how much of that is the movie needing to do what the movie needs to do. Because <laughs> I think railroad tracks are probably a lot smaller than cars are wide. At least today, but of course back then it would have been a different story as well. Yeah, I would assume they probably modified the DeLorean to fit because that's what they typically did in the series. Like at the beginning of this movie when he first travels back to 1885 and he's 
riding through the desert, Monument Valley or whatever, and uh, he's going over all these bumps and hills. They had to add suspension into the DeLorean, <laughs> otherwise it wouldn't have survived that The DeLorean trip. is a flawed vehicle uh, design, uh, but uh, we're going to improve it for the movie. Maybe sell some cars. I love uh, just a quick aside. If you watch the special features and read into it at all, everybody on set and in the cast will testify to how much a piece of crap the DeLorean was <laughs> and how much they hated it. Well, and they read that letter uh, from the, the president of DeLorean Motors Company thanking Bob and Bob for the use of the DeLorean in, in the film. Right. It was it was a perfect vehicle in terms of appearance and not not much beyond that. <laughs> if you're going to travel through time, why not do it with style? And I think that, that honestly, that line fits the entire series. You were looking for a closing line for the series, too, in my opinion. Uh, it's that one, which is that we've been on this really stylish journey. There's been some uh, parody uh, or sorry, um, satire of consumerism and we've we've gotten a glimpse into our own future, which I guess now is our past, 2015. But uh, it was a cautionary tale. And I think in many cases, we didn't heed its advice, but uh, we certainly should have. We had enough time to prevent uh, the 30 years from coming true. But yeah, all, all the same, it's a very stylish, wonderful adventure film that I will certainly show to my children and hope that they show to their children uh, for generations to come with no reboots. You know, I, I've now talked about this trilogy for upwards of three hours, going on yeah. four probably on this podcast, and it's because it's it's important to me. I mean, the first film especially, but the trilogy as a whole, it it's so important in my early love for film, and I just don't know where I would be or what I would be doing today if it weren't for this movie. I know that's, that sounds hokey, but it's true because, I mean, if you look at my bedroom, I have two Back to the Future posters over my bed. I have time machine models from every film. I have all these collectibles. I know you have lots of collectibles too. And it, it's just a movie that has played such a big part in our lives. And yeah. it's crazy to think that this movie that is now 32 years old and this one is only, what, 27, 27. at this point? They hold the test of time so well and they, they withstand not deep scrutiny as far as like plot details and plot holes go, but they're, they're fun films and there's a lot to take away from them. So if, if you haven't, I mean, obviously I think if you've listened through this episode, you've probably seen these movies, but I just want to emphasize that these movies matter and they, they can be used to teach and to learn from and just to entertain overall. So I think that that sort of wraps up my thoughts on, part three of back to the future and the trilogy as a whole. And I think that leads us to the end of the official 50th episode of Cinescopes. Thank wow. you so much, Eric. Yeah, man. Is this uh semi-centennial? Is that how it's what it's called? Uh, possibly. <laughs> yeah. 50th, the five zero, the big L, <laughs> the shape <laughs> of an L on my forehead um, for, <laughs> nice. fi for five zero contact for the show you can find facebook.com slash cinescope podcast and at cinescope pod on twitter again if you're interested in the giveaway winning some free movies and helping the show out as well rate review and subscribe on itunes and also share on facebook and twitter and tag us in the post so you can be entered to possibly win any movie that we've talked about up to this point uh, email feedback and ideas to the podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use email to contact regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love that you think you could talk about for a little while, let me know because I'd love to have you on the show. Eric, where can people find you and your stuff online? 
Find me on Twitter at Spielerman, S-P-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N, on Twitter, and then, of course, uh, Twitter at MuggleCast, M-U-G-G-L-E-C-A-S-T, and I also edit the Improvised Star Trek podcast, which you can find on Twitter at Improv Star Trek. Also, they have a new website, which you should check out. But uh, those that be it. Those be my plugs. Awesome. And links to that will be in the show notes to both MuggleCast, to Improv, Star Trek, and to any other social media where you can find Eric. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at the website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you, Eric. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the show and talking movies with you. It is always such a pleasure to be back, and thank you for having me back. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 50. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 51. Have fun, and celebrate movies. Mm